0: Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm
1: Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today's episode is titled This Fall Will Be a COVID Nightmare. <laughs> or will it
0: or will it that is a big question <laughs> right we've all been wondering and today we're going to talk about how pandemics end medically versus socially we're going to talk about the psychology of exhaustion and self-control and we're going to talk about the role of organizations and leaders as we move forward so why don't we just jump right into this and let's start with that first one, which is how the heck do these pandemics even end? If Are there any things that we can learn when we look at the history of civilization with regard to pandemics?
1: Yeah, so we've all seen tons of articles out if you're into reading journalism type stuff about, you know, COVID. You may be through with COVID, but COVID's not through with you or there's like. <laughs> There's a bunch of different types of those types of titles, which really divides that, like we're talking about, that pandemics do end. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there's two tranches of this, what medically and then socially.
0: Yeah, there's a big difference there. So that, that medical end to a pandemic is when the disease is eradicated, when it's gone from the population or at least gone to the extent At which it's not going to propagate any farther than it or further than it does, um, or than than the people who have it. So you know, this a good example of this, and kind of one of the only examples uh, is polio. And we're we're pulling from an article that we'll link to in the New York Times, which is talking about how pandemics end, and it it does a good job of talking through the historical um, examples of of these different instances. But the medical end with polio was, you know, they created a vaccine that vaccine works really really well you only have to administer it once and you are vaccinated for a lifetime uh polio apparently you can't get that from animals uh and uh, you know so that that was a medical end um polio has been uh virtually eradicated from the planet so medically gone but that's not the whole story there's a social end to pandemics as well what's that all about chris
1: Well, it's where you just decide it's over. You know, you find a nice bucket of sand. (laughs) It's
0: over because I say it's over and I want to go to the movie theater.
1: (laughs) Like every vacation I ever went on as a kid, where my mom at her wits end pulls over, this vacation is over. <laughs> Was
0: that like, like on the way or to or from the vacation? Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: my poor mom. Oh my gosh.
0: That's right. I mean, but but what's interesting is this article in the New York Times talks about how most of of the pandemics that we've experienced as a, as a civilizations. Have ended actually more of the social way which is just like you said people get sick of it they get sick
1: of the restrictions well to, just... to be fair a lot of the pandemics happened when there wasn't a whole lot of science that yeah, could have saved it off right
0: that, that, is, that is true that is true and, right and so
1: and with lack of any tools you say well i you know close your eyes and plug your nose, we're jumping, right? <laughs> we're going
0: for it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um,
0: yeah, exactly. So, you know, but people do get sick of having to do certain things that are different to them. And I think we're starting to see some of this, at least I am, right? When we, among our friends and our our family members, perhaps, uh, people are ready to go back to normal. And, and that. I, I can't argue with that instinct or that desire, and we'll talk more about that later in the episode, but people just kind of want to go back to these normal routines. We're starting to see that many states and municipalities are starting to open up, quote unquote, and have their restaurants and other types of places um, be open for business. And, you know, I, I think that's part of this social ending to the pandemic. And, uh, and but, but it's, it's, it's kind of like we're just acting that it's over. But right, but, So but the medical part isn't
1: over. Right. Well, this is the thing. No matter what you or your numbskull neighbors have to say. No
0: the numbskulls.
1: That COVID doesn't give a rip. It's, he's like the honey badger. <laughs> the
0: honey badger. I knew you were gonna say it. Yes.
1: He can walk backwards and eat snakes, right? Like <laughs>
0: the, the, this oh, we're thing. Gonna, we're this gonna post a link to that so people know what we're talking about.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not. Um. Anyway, we'll do it. So, so everybody sits out there and says, "Well, this is what you shouldn't do," or "This is what you should do." And it became really challenging because the communication around this was a little bit disjointed. A, um, a little bit. Different states had, you know, better quality of communication and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people want to put their hat on, you'll hear everything. And we definitely believe that, you know, trust the experts and those kinds of things, you know, that's a generally a good idea when you're not an epidemiologist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought about this stuff as kind of a kind of a three prong approach. One, you know, okay. The experts are saying we got to shut down. We're seeing the bodies stack up in Italy and everything. Um, and, well god let's do it you know and you know we had masks and you know we stayed socially isolated we you know tried to plug in for information and then all of a sudden we're starting to open
0: Mm -hmm. but
1: but nothing has changed and we'll talk about that (laughs) kind of stuff but but then nothing has changed so you know and you know, my numbskull head, who's not an expert on this, and we actually had to do some research, and we're, we're going to talk to an expert here in the middle of this episode about this stuff. But then I said, well, wait a minute. If nothing's changed and we're opening, well, either it was wrong to shut or it's wrong to open, or there's something I'm missing out on. Right. So and, maybe... there, and there was stuff that I was missing out on, and, and we'll talk yeah, about that.
0: For sure. So why don't we just tell our listeners or try to... Recap based upon what we know and what we've read, you know what has and what hasn't changed in these last three months. So maybe if we start with that first one, you know what has changed. You know some things that come to mind uh, when I think back to you know mid early to mid March to now. um, You know fairly widespread physical distancing. We've we've that's become embraced at least uh, by large segments of the population. It's become much more common for people to be wearing masks. I actually was uh, had to take a a trip on an airplane um, not too long ago and uh,
1: for the Navy know, not yes, not for a, fun
0: it was it was mission essential uh, so I, I had to go and uh, you know mask wearing is required um, you know on on the airplanes um, and you know I think maybe we're seeing some better hygiene you know I've always been a little bit of a um maybe overactive uh hand washer, but it seems like you know people are are taking that more seriously uh certainly less travel you know um yeah that, that's still the case uh what else has changed?
1: Well, I mean, all these businesses have shut i mean there's no demand for their services and and lots no. of times they couldn't legally stay open right um i mean there's kind of starting to now um and uh, there's been some modest innovations in treatment. A lot of it anecdotal because it's hard to get the studies. Um, exactly. My yeah. pa- my pants don't fit anymore, and my <laughs> my liver is probably damaged. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you went you went that route
0: during during the lockdown, huh?
1: Well, what else are you gonna do at nine a.m. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mean aside from work at, working out? Uh yeah. So um okay, so those are some things that have changed, but there's some really important things that have not changed.
1: Right. So we one, we don't have a vaccine. Nope. And yeah. you know, there's a small chance we could just discover one today, even, you know, or tomorrow.
0: Right. Um,
1: but then there's also a small chance that that it's already gone by the time we get a vaccine. Yeah. And, yeah. and then any scenario in between, you know, some experts have probably modeled it. We've seen stuff for like three to five years. I mean, we all that stuff. Regardless, we don't have a vaccine. And sometimes we have like the flu vaccines only like 50 percent, 2050. It varies on the year. It's not 100 percent effective like, say, the polio vaccine was. Right.
0: That's exactly right. And, you know, we, we don't have revolutionary ways to treat COVID-19. You know, um, there have been some medications, remdesivir is one that comes to mind, that I think has proven to be a little bit helpful with some of the symptoms, um, but it's not widely accessible. Uh, There's also some antibody treatments that are being used, but it's not super clear. Like you said, a lot of this is anecdotal at this point. It's very hard in the middle of all of this to do a randomized uh, uh, clinical trial, right? You can't do that. Um, very easily. You, I mean, you can't, but it's very, very difficult right now. Um, you know, another thing that has not changed is that the disease is still highly contagious. And for some segments of the population, it can be pretty nasty. Uh, and it, but that's not even super clear in terms of who exactly is at risk. It seems that older people, certainly, people with some respiratory issues already, yes. Uh, but then you do come across some cases where, you know, relatively healthy people in their 30s and 40s also get very, very sick. So, you know, we, we, you know that's something that has not changed. Um, you know, even kind of like how the disease presents itself and what people are, you know, scientists are learning about it and doctors are seeing that it's it's odd, you know. Um, some of it's respiratory. There's actually some who have digestive issues, even some dermatological types of manifestations of COVID, um, you know, in children and so forth. So, there's a lot that we don't know and we and like you said, we don't have a vaccine.
1: Yeah, we're we're in total learning mode. So that you know, to that point of, well, we're we're opening now, but nothing has changed. And you know, like my inner spidey sense kind of wants to say, This is baloney. Like <laughs> well, well, why'd we shut down? I mean, these are normal things that a rational person <laughs> like I'm rational, but um, no, that or a normal. rational, yeah, <laughs> rational person would think, right. Right. So another thing that has changed is we're flipping tired of staying at home. <laughs> Dash, go, yeah. It's just like,
0: you know, ready to not be stuck here. And, you know, um,
1: our kids uh, are ready for us to get out of there.
0: <laughs>
1: get <laughs> go to camp. You know, all these things are, are problematic because we're, we've just, they're too much of a good thing, you know? Right. And um, so that that last item, you know, being sick of a lockdown is what's driving decisions and behavior so much right now.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of this uh, social end to the pandemic. But like we said, you know, that's not the medical end. So this also kind of brings us to another big question of, is a second wave of coronavirus going to hit us? And some people and some models suggest that yes, you know, after the summer into the fall and, and winter seasons, we're going to experience a second wave of this virus. Um, but even those ideas are somewhat uh, fraught with um, some speculation. I'll yeah, say
1: every every state is different, mm-hmm. right? You know we every some people never did flatten the curve, you know they're just cruising on up still, right?
2: That's um, right?
1: other states have reduced and dropped it down it It just depends on where you're at. If you're in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, you might have not been touched at all,
0: yeah, yeah, hey you you know what we should do we We should talk to your dad, yeah, yeah let's let's give him a call, all right.
1: All right. Hey, Dad, are you there? I'm here. This is Warren Everett. All right. So uh, for those of our guests that don't know, um, I've got my dad on the podcast today. He's he's a doctor. And um, Dad, uh, give us a bit of your academic background and uh, maybe personal professional
2: background. Okay. Well, I'm a graduate of the Air Force Academy. I spent 24 years in the Air Force and uh, did a specialty in family practice and in aerospace medicine. And after retirement, uh, taught at uh, University of Alabama School of Medicine as a professor of family practice and had uh, fun and delight to work with uh, NASA on the space station on their water recovery program. So, uh, I've had a very enjoyable retirement uh, career, but I failed retirement, and I'm now working in an emergency room during the uh, COVID ev- epidemic.
1: Awesome! Uh, any experience with public health or infectious disease?
2: Well, uh, yes, uh, I uh, worked uh, problems with public health and uh, during the Southeast Asia uh, unpleasantness, uh, working with the uh, Cambodian Air Force handling. Uh, um, their problem with uh, malaria. Uh, so uh, that was very exciting. But of course, I did a, uh, a master's uh, public health degree at uh, Harvard as part of my aerospace uh, medicine uh, 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 residency. And of course, we're always interested in all kinds of uh, rare and tropical and exotic diseases as the Air Force flies all over the world. And so, uh, yeah, I was involved in that and had a lot of fun uh working in that area. Thank you, awesome, yeah,
1: I know, total leading question, but, um, I think it's important to highlight that experience so so, Dad, uh, Ben and I, in prepping for this episode, were just talking about um well what's what's going on here? um it almost seems like you know, maybe there should be some more discipline around communication around a project plan and and, it's, you know, we read a lot in the news and, you know, New York Times, Atlantic on, on television. You know, all this stuff is so much uh, to put together that, you know, I said, hey, we should call my dad and and get his his take on some of the stuff. So, um, Dad, how does somebody decide to shut down a country um, or place uh, based on a
2: disease? Well, that's an interesting question. I think um, uh, we got the first news about the pandemic um, from China, and uh, they decided they had to pretty much uh, shut down the province uh, that Wuhan was in, and uh, it seemed to help them get control of it. Uh, so uh, I guess we kind of picked up from that. Uh, it was very hard for us to understand uh, um, the intelligence coming out of uh, uh, China, and then it hit uh, Italy and Western Europe, and landed in our shores uh, pretty much about the same time. And uh, so, um, trying to understand all this information was informed by the history of uh, of infectious diseases to so even go back to uh, the bubonic plague and uh, the Spanish flu and uh, our experience with uh, uh, Christopher Columbus uh, landing in the New World and then all the Indians dying off from all the diseases they got. So all this uh, historical memory uh, was uh, brought to the fore to try to figure out how to uh, address this problem. And so uh, social distancing and isolation was obviously the first uh, thing that we could think of, given that we had no cure and no vaccine.
1: Sure, but but so so the CDC, World Health Organization, what's what's their playbook? Is there any math that they they use to say, okay, we this is when we shut down?
2: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, it's just uh, as it got to be so big, and it was, looked like it was going to spread throughout the world, uh, and. The, uh, the capacity to care for all these people was likely to be overwhelmed, they said, we need to slow it down. And the only immediate um, uh, strategy you had to do that was uh, I- isolation. Uh, and that could slow it down very rapidly and keep it to a, uh, uh, a level that the uh, healthcare community could respond within the capacity they had at that time. And it gave them time to expand the capacity. Great. So I guess
0: I'll, I'll jump in here. And uh, you know, I guess one question that we're wrestling with right now is it seems like people are acting like there isn't a pandemic, at least when I, you know, hear people talk or I go out in public, it seems like people are starting to be relaxed and uh, you know, uh, what's your take on on that? Like, why are people doing that? And do you think that it's it's sustainable for people for our society to be locked down?
2: I I think it's um, uh, more informed to consider. Uh, there's different parts of societies. You know, when I see uh, patients in uh, the emergency room, uh, they all have different takes on what their risk and what they're willing to do. And so, uh, like the United States, is a very large society. Uh, Currently, I'm in North Dakota. That's a very rural place. It's an entirely different environment than uh, downtown uh, New York City and Manhattan. And so, each uh, community is going to have to assess uh, what their risk is and uh, a proper approach for that particular uh, community. Uh, so, uh, it's not a uh, one-size-fits-all. For some uh, diseases, uh, there's always one treatment. You know, for strep throat, it's just one treatment, okay? Uh, but in this case, uh, you're talking about treating a whole population and, uh, with no vaccine or something, you're gonna have to do different things at different places, and if you have an isolated community... With uh, uh, no interaction with the rest of the world, doesn't make any sense to do anything. Um, and so uh, it has to be decided on a local basis, in my view.
1: All right. So what what's a rule of thumb? If you're local or if you're a company or a leader in charge of a group of people. and you, what, what kind of rule of thumb would you recommend for somebody to think of, a heuristic, if you will, on this stuff?
2: Well, I was, um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of coronaviruses in the uh, uh, food processing with chicken plants and porks and things like that. Uh, they can wear a face mask and rubber gloves and all that kind of stuff. But uh, they found out that the coronavirus uh, was just a, a real mess in that that plant uh, and, and but they did everything in the plant to take care of it but the people are getting coronavirus because it all packed they six people into a car and they got it uh, commuting to and from the plant so, so sometimes it's complicated and, and of course uh, well what can the plant do about uh, uh, working with the uh, the, the, the commute um, uh, and, and, of course, they got to keep the food processing, or else uh, we won't keep, get any food, and so there's a lot of people depend on them. And so the solution has got to be fine-tuned uh, to the problem uh, uh, where you're at. Um, there was no social distancing or anything in the, uh, South Dakota, and yet they had these little hot spots of the food processing plants. And, of course, they couldn't shut those down because the whole country was depending on, uh, on the meat that was coming through them. Uh, and and uh, there was a lot of criticism about that, but it just wasn't the workers. It was everybody else in the country you have to think about. And so it's a nuanced answer.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, we, we've been hearing a lot about that um, is vaccines. And you had mentioned, you would alluded to it in one of your answers a, a few minutes ago. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about the probability of a vaccine actually being developed and it, it perhaps working or not working um, for the folks who need it the most?
2: Well, that's not my area of expertise. Um, you know, we get a new uh, vaccine every year uh, for influenza. Uh but we've been doing this for many decades and we know about the influenza virus. Okay. The coronavirus is a different breed. It's got all these spikes and everything on it. Um and you know, you have to also consider uh some of the history. Uh in the Spanish flu uh uh in nineteen eighteen uh, it started out it was pretty. Uh, it wasn't much to say say about. It. it actually mutated and got more deadly. Okay, so we have to watch this coronavirus. It's going around. It's mutating. Some of the things are changing. Uh, maybe it'll get more deadly. Maybe it'll get less deadly. And as it mutates, is that going to change uh, how you have to do the uh, the vaccine? Uh, currently, there. My understanding is. The vaccine is uh, concentrating on the spikes, which they think won't mutate. Um, but we'll have to see, because it's the nature of, uh, you know, mother nature. Uh, there's mutations all the time, and of course, uh, what we think will happening right now, we don't know. Things could change, and so a lot of these things are unknown, and so we have to keep an open mind about them. And uh, I don't know that you can predict the future very well. I think you ought to be skeptical about about the future. I hope for the best, but plan for the worst.
1: All right, so let, let's talk about project management of this stuff. Okay, we're hearing stuff out of China. We see the devastating imagery coming out of Italy and all that kind of stuff. You know, one of the, the math pieces that's mentioned is the R, R value,
2: right? What What is the R value? The R naught is how infected it is. Uh, if it's one, that means if one person has it, he can give it just to one other person. But if it goes over one, uh, like it goes to two, well, if if everybody that gets infected uh, infects two other people, and those uh, people, two more people, you can see how you get a logarithmic, a uh, huge uh, spike in the in, in the epidemic. But of course, the the infectivity may be different for different populations, and it seems like it may be. Uh, but maybe maybe the infectivity is the same, but the, the different populations, some uh, the older people and the people with comorbidities uh, get sicker, but younger people don't get sicker. Uh, the thing about the Spanish flu was it really hit the young people. A lot, you know, the, the soldiers that come in from the trenches uh, with wounds and they die of the Spanish flu instead of their wound. It was really devastating lost more people in the Army uh, during World War II for the flu than we did from uh, 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 battle uh, wounds.
1: And and there's actually an interesting story behind it being called the Spanish flu, which kind of speaks to socially how we think about these. What was that story?
2: Well, um, as the uh, Spanish flu was uh, going through the country, we had trouble funding our participation in World War I. And so there were lots of bond drives and things like that. And there was talk about, uh, oh, we have got to cancel that. Uh, but instead, like in Philadelphia, they said, no, we got to support our troops in the field. And so they had a huge parade. Everybody came around and tried to encourage people to uh, buy bombs. And Philadelphia was devastated because of all the, the social mixing and everything. It just spread through Philadelphia they had a high death rate. The reverse of that was getting the troops ready to, to go over uh, overseas, and uh, there was these West Pointers, and they were used to train the troops uh, to get them ready to go over there. And there was this obscure uh, officer had a big camp uh, near Gettysburg, uh, Pennsylvania, and those troops were getting ready to get deployed. They were waiting for a convoy to take them over, and they had another group of uh, National Guardsmen coming in from New York. And he said, oh, no, you can't come in here. you got to go camp over this other place. We're getting the tents and everything, and we'll ship the food over to you. The guys that came from New York, within uh, two weeks, all sick with the Spanish flu. And all of his troops, none of them got sick, and they were all able to deploy and go to the trenches. And, uh, of course, uh, this guy didn't get to go with them. He had to stay there at the camp. He was obscure uh young officer, but he was the only officer in the whole United States Army that didn't have any of his troops died from Spanish flu, and his name was Eisenhower.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's such a great story. So okay, so we have some data. If it's super and in infectious, you know, R greater than you know, some number, then then we can have a kind of an informed reason to immediately kind of shut down and get our hands around it, correct?
2: Uh, That's correct. But the trouble is calculating the R-naught is um, very difficult Uh, because, first of all, you have to know who's infected and how many other people got infected. And since there's people that get infected who are asymptomatic, how do you detect them? Well, that wasn't true with Spanish flu, but we have a lot of people that are infected with coronavirus that are asymptomatic carriers and can transmit it. And so it's really hard to know exactly what the R0 number is. Even with all this data we have so far, it's arguable exactly how transmittal it is. And uh, in other words, you have an asymptomatic person and visit somebody in a nursing home and all of a sudden then everybody uh, in the nursing home are dying from it. It's a it, it's complicated, uh, and so when you get all these terrible outbreaks, of course that's a huge political problem, and uh, the politicians have to respond to that. And so uh, shutting down is uh, uh, is the knee jerk because that's the only, you don't have vaccine, you don't have treatments. That's the only thing you can do. But after you're living with it for quite a while, uh, you you can see that geez, different populations. Have uh, different attack rates and, and different consequences. Uh, the people that are 80 years old and over have a high incidence of uh, mortality. Those over 65 to 80, a little less. Those under, uh, those in the uh, working age group, uh, especially under 45, very unlikely unless they have severe comorbidities. And so, uh, somewhere along the line, you have to open up your e- economy. Because how do you have the money to take care of anybody if you don't have any tax revenue or people aren't given paying their uh, medical insurance? You know, you have to have a, an engine to keep your society going. You have to restart it. And so you have to do that in some kind of a rational uh, way, and that's what we're struggling with. And each community will be different. Each state will be different. Maybe each city will be different. If you're uh, one part of the economy that has not been affected at all, is agriculture. Uh, they're still uh, harvesting soybeans and wheat and slaughtering uh, chickens and cows and, and pork, and, and that hasn't been, because that's all mostly rural, and those people have natural social distancing. But that's just a small part of the economy. The rest of the economy has got to get going in order for us to have the uh, resources and, in order to take care of everybody.
1: Right. So during the Spanish flu, you know, the world's at war, right? And but you don't hear about the Spanish flu really in places like England and stuff at the time. Why was that?
2: Well, well, it's because the war was on and nobody wanted to talk about the Spanish flu. They were all worried about their boys that were at the front and even the Germans. And so it was politically incorrect to bring it uh, forward, to even talk about it. I guess maybe the Chinese had the same reflex when they kind of didn't talk about the coronavirus <laughs> because it was bad news. They wanted to keep it uh, buried. And the only reason that it was called the Spanish flu is because Spain wasn't involved in World War I. And they said, hey, we got this flu. It's terrible. And they were only one that were speaking the, the truth. And so everybody said, "Well, we didn't hear it come from anywhere else It came from Spain. Well, it didn't come from Spain. They're the only <laughs> ones who were honest about it.
1: <laughs> wow, <laughs> right which, which that kind of brings us, though, to this social element. Nobody wanted to talk about it because heck, war four speed ahead, right? And so, you know, we definitely had some kind of mathematical model and thought and reflex to shut down our economy and now it looks like you know nothing's really changed we don't have a vaccine maybe one will come maybe one won't maybe it will mutate into something worse or into something benign you know there's all these unknown unknowns when we start to talk about well how do we decide to open up and do stuff it it sounds like it's
2: you just go with how you feel right uh well how how you feel might um might reflect on the data because you see the, the data that, that comes in. And uh, the other thing is, you, you know, we're a country founded on liberty and maybe uh, people need to take personal responsibility. If you are older and you're more vulnerable, well then maybe you need to uh, self-isolate yourself. And if you're younger but have a lot of comorbidities co- and worried about it, well then maybe you need to take responsibility and stay away. But all the other people that are doing well, uh, that are young, don't have any comorbidities, and have a job they can do, uh, they need to get back to work. And they shouldn't be permitted, uh, you know, prohibited from uh, running in the economic engine. Telling people what to do sometimes isn't so easy. Uh, You know, we try to get people, and we were very successful in decreasing alcohol morbidity during prohibition. But it wasn't politically sustainable, and it just gave a a lot of wealth to uh, Al Capone and all the uh, bootleggers. And so we decided not to do that. And every day in my emergency room, I told people they need to lose weight. They need to watch their diet to keep their diabetes under control. They need to stop uh, using uh, heroin or uh, other uh, illicit drugs Uh, or stop smoking and uh mostly they tell me to just drop dead uh they want to do what they want to do the few who will get better because they do exactly what i say but uh most people just decide they want to do what they want to do or at least that's what it seems like to me because the only ones i see coming back to my emergency rooms are the ones that don't do what i tell them to do and the other ones disappear i never see them again <laughs> so so uh uh i i i think Putting um, personal responsibility and uh, leaving the judgment up to uh, the uh, people who own the businesses and whatnot, I I think that's legitimate because I think it's hard for the government to know everything and to be able to boss everybody around and to tell them what to do. <laughs>
0: So you were talking about personal responsibility and personal decision making with regard to risk and so forth. And I think it kind of raises an interesting moral question potentially. You know, let's imagine you have an older person, maybe this person also has some other comorbidities that would make this person more at risk for contracting coronavirus and uh and, and not faring well if they if they did contract it. Um you know, what would you say to that person about them putting themselves at risk by maybe going to their grandkids' birthday party or something like that?
2: Well, I, I would advise against it, but, um, you know, some people will decide to do that anyway. And, they're, and uh, their feeling would be, well, geez, I'm 80 years old. Uh, my parents didn't live to be this old. I only uh, probably have a few more years left anyway, and I just want to live it the way I want to live. And it, I think that's a legitimate uh, thing for them to do. Uh, it's called freedom.
1: Interesting. So, Dad, before we wrap up, what is there any piece to the conversation that's being had nationally about uh, covid or that you see in the professional dialogue that's happening that you think is kind of missing from the national public discussion?
2: Well, uh, among physicians, uh, we're interested in the development of uh, what medicines might work. Uh, COVID is very interesting. It's very similar to Spanish flu in that the it isn't the infection. It's the problem. It's the cytokine storm, which, which means the kind of you can think of as the allergic reaction or the allergic reaction uh, to the virus that causes all the disease. Uh, and so um, anti-inflammatories and, or things are thought to maybe that's where we got under this uh, uh, plaquenil that, the, that uh, President Trump says he takes sure. once a month. Uh, that's kind of an anti-inflammatory. Uh, there's no evidence that it works. But the thought that if you could use some kind of anti-inflammatory, that might well uh, stop this cytokine storm, which was a problem with Spanish flu and is also the problem with the coronavirus. We hope there'll be some developments there. But it's very difficult to do uh, clinical trials because you have to get people in the placebo arm and in the treatment arm, and then they have to be similar patients. In order for you to, and it's, and in the hurly burly and craziness of the overwhelming pandemic, setting up these studies is very difficult. And so um, we get a lot of anecdotal stuff uh, that doesn't really meet the um, uh, scientific criteria. And so uh, treatments are, uh, are, are kind of slow to come around. But everybody's watching carefully and uh, seeing if maybe they will something will happen.
1: Interesting. Ben, anything else?
0: Yeah. Well, I think just may this has been fantastic. And maybe Doc, as we uh wrap up here, is there anything that you would that uh you would want our listeners, which is, you know, of course, millions <laughs> of people around the world, um w- anything that you would <laughs> want to be able that want to be able to share with them, uh things that maybe the general public um is miss, con- you know any misconceptions about coronavirus or um about kind of you know the way things might go in the next few months anything at all that you think uh from a physician's perspective people should uh, should know that maybe they are less aware about
2: well i might reflect i uh, guess this way um we're living now longer than we've ever lived in the history of humanity and we're having this uh, terrible pandemic, and uh, it's not nearly as devastating as the Spanish flu. And it's a result of the tremendous progress we've made. We have jet airplanes, can mix, you can come from China to Seattle in a very short period of time. And we're at a period of history when, yes, we have lots of wars and all that kind of stuff, but it's really... As peaceful as it's ever been, I mean, after all, we don't have the Napoleon raging across uh, Western Europe anymore, <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, death rates from gun violence uh, is uh, worldwide is probably a, is a low point uh, in the history. These are diseases, a kind of a progress, and we want to keep our progress, and so uh, hopefully. We'll overcome this, just like uh, we did the bubonic plague and uh, the Spanish flu, and it's just another little hiccup part of our culture. And maybe we'll be blessed with some great uh, literary uh, geniuses uh, like Boccaccio. I I can't remember who wrote the Canterbury Tales. Those are both great parts of our literature and our heritage, and uh, so hopefully somebody will come up with that for this uh, coronavirus pandemic.
1: So you're looking for some better reading out of a global pandemic. I love it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I
0: love the optimism. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay.
1: Bye now. Bye. Okay. Well, you know, I never thought we would uh, interview my dad on our podcast, but
0: <laughs> I'm glad we did.
1: <laughs> he's, a, he's a pretty good guy. Um,
0: <laughs> That's right. So now that we've kind of gotten his perspective on a variety of issues related to coronavirus and, and public health, um, I, I think another issue that we need to explore here, going back to that idea of a social end to a pandemic and us just being sick of lockdown, is this idea of the whole psychology behind exhaustion and self-control. And it turns out there's quite a bit of research in the world of psychology that tells us a little bit about how self-control works and what we call self-regulation. And what it seems to suggest is that this is a limited resource, you know, that self-control in some ways resembles a muscle and, you know, if you've uh, ever used any of your muscles for an extended period of time, uh, you know that you get tired, right? And yeah.
1: muscle failure. it happens. Yeah, e-
0: exactly. And so, you know, this article that we, uh, in particular, that we will post a link to from Psychological Bulletin, this is an article that came out a while ago. In fact, it came out 20 years ago, but it does a really good job of, kind of reviewing some of this research on Self-regulation and how uh, this is a limited resource that we have psychologically, uh, you know it, it suggests that, uh, and I'll just quote from the abstract, they say the authors conclude that the executive component of the, of the self, in particular, inhibition, relies on a limited consumable resource. so just to break that down into to plain English, you know we have these instincts, we have these drives, we have these routines, and when those are disrupted. We have to exert more cognitive effort, right? You think about it, like, it, let's take like one of your basic things that you do every day. Um, do you brush your teeth every day? Yeah,
1: twice a day.
0: <laughs> twice a day. Wow. <laughs> amazing. Awesome. Now, uh, I mean, I, I got
1: the sonic care. It's got the, I, you know, 30 seconds per. I love I, it.
0: You know, I, I we have not shared this with each other, but I have the sonic care as well. That's amazing. Um, uh, so, anyway, <laughs> if you would uh, <laughs> imagine, so I'm right handed, as are you. Um, imagine if you had to just do that with your left hand tomorrow and for, you know, for a a long time, It, it takes a lot more cognitive effort to do that because you're having to, uh, you know, position your hand in a certain way and think about it more. Everything is much more deliberate. And that's a lot of what we've been going through over these past three months. We've had to think more about what we're doing and it's exhausting. And so we just get tired. And I think we're seeing a lot of tiredness in our friends in our family members. And it's just like, you know what? I'm I'm ready to go to the park. I'm ready to go to the restaurant. Those types of things.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, where we talk, there's a social end and every other pandemic has just ended with people deciding to move on. Right. Um, you know, there's some other, like, you know, SARS had a different plan. There's a containment contact tracing. There, You know, there's some of those things, but stuff that I've seen in my friends is virtual virtue signaling. Hmm with regard to coronavirus. Right, right. Do you have Oh, you don't have N95 masks you did a homemade mask. Oh, I don't I don't know if that's medically preferred. Be- well, I, they they had run out. Oh, okay, I guess you get a pass then. Um, <laughs> like these imaginary rules um to, to all kinds of different judging behaviors as different families go through. But, you know, like we discussed with my dad, you know, there's a certain factor that kicks public health policy into place. And we have start lockdowns. You know, somebody makes that call at some point. We begin to get our arms around it. And and then we got to decide what to do from there. And there's yeah. not a well, when this number moves to point seven open, everything will be perfect.
0: <laughs> right, right. You know, some other things that I've noticed, uh, I haven't seen as much of the, the virtue signaling but uh, I, I can imagine it, it certainly is happening. You know, I've also seen just people in general just getting kind of cynical and saying, you know, do we really have to do this? This is crazy. You know, not going to make me wear that mask, you know, those types of behaviors. Um, so I think these are all kind of tied into this social aspect of where we are right now as a society.
1: Right. and And none of these, you know, everyone will act like, oh, well, I've got the secret data, you know, or I know these things. And actually what we know is there's not much to know here. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, there's not a right answer. There's some better answers, but there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. Another thing that I saw is people that became super, like we're even socially distancing within our house. And, you know, we have all the N95 masks and, you know, all disposable plates and, you know, what, what? and then, oh, we're opening up quick and roll all my kids in every camp. I don't care if they're required a mask or not. You know, you know, you see people. But, you know, that's a reasonable emotional reaction. You don't know. You're not an expert. You're trying to make the best decision for yourself and your family and that kind of thing. And uh, but then you kind of settle on into the course of things. And especially, you know, if you're a single person all by yourself in an apartment, there's oh, only so much you can do yeah. and 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 then people are starting to say okay what's more pragmatic here now one study that was done that i came out recently it was on air force basic training hmm. and i think it's like ten thousand recruits or something um and we'll put the link to that in the show notes um they put all these people on lockdown and after they knew that they were past the infection window, like two weeks or whatever it was, then they did it and they were able to be successful and not have any extra outbreaks. Right. But we can't do that as a society. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the things I was reminded is like one of the things that's a basic human right. That's in the uh, UN bill of human rights, or I forget what they exactly call that, but is freedom of movement within the country. And, and, mm. Um, I see a lot of people talk about, well, we just got to lock down and do all of this, and yet these same people will also say that well, we need to respect our institutions and laws and things like that, and being able to make movement and we we saw that in some towns okay you got to recreate within your county or something like that we We saw some of that stuff, so but the us being able to lock down forever like something the military could do if it wanted to is just not practical at, at all for an entire country and, and, and possible, honestly.
0: Right, right. You know, and it kind of speaks to that point, um, you know, that we talked about earlier with regard to actually trying to do some sort of um, actual clinical trial right now. It, it's very difficult to do that in the general population. So, um, you know, even among the scientists and the experts, they know a lot. They know um, about what's going on and we should listen to them. Um, and uh, you know, at the same time, it's, it's very tricky. It's a complicated issue, it's moving, it's dynamic, and there are a lot of variables at play that make it very difficult from a scientific perspective to study. Um, you know, At some point, probably in the future, we'll be able to retrospectively look at things and that'll give us a clearer picture of what happened. But right now,
1: very difficult. Right. So so let's talk about the role of organizations and leaders as as we move forward. Um, Sure. First of all, I want to say if you're a company or organization that's deciding to open up, you're not a big jerk for opening up. (laughs) Right. Right. Don't don't listen to like people. And this is something that I've really seen out in the media. And and Mm. we'll talk about this here in a minute. There's kind of this soft consensus that we're failing right now because we're opening up, yet in some places cases are still increasing. There is no moral certainty in the data, and I would challenge anyone. And maybe somebody wants to write in if they've got a really good model on this. You know, how what would be the inputs in that model? Mm-hmm. You know, now insurance companies put put the um, a price on human life all the time. Um, we put a price on human life when we drive our cars. Now, COVID is not like driving, but we take risks. It's not, we don't live a risk-free life. So if you're looking at the data and the stuff that, that's, that's out there, um, some of the stuff that we talked about in conversation with my dad, um, well, you may decide that, it, that it's worth it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I would hold moral judgment for organizations that are moving forward.
0: Right. And I think it's also another way to think about this is thinking about different responses to different segments of the population. So maybe there's a societal response that we have to certain at-risk populations. Maybe we treat those who are of a certain age a little bit differently with regard to opening up. You know, some stores are doing this, retail outlets are doing this in terms of, hey, this, this is a time of day in which people of a certain age are uh, should should come in and shop at this point. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is really kind of a, a um, uncharted waters. I think we're trying to figure out a lot of things and, you know, maybe this is a policy level discussion that needs to happen. Um, maybe this is something that individual organizations can try. Uh, but I think there's a lot that still needs to be found out to, to really make this work.
1: Right. And like we talked about with the Spanish flu, we were at war and it was worth it, even though a lot of people died. Um, to continue to send soldiers, even though they might get the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things, you know, people that want to take a purity test on this, uh, you know, it's either hard yes or hard no, are suspending that because the Black Lives Matter protest is worth the risk, you Mm -hmm. know. You already see groups of people making their risk assessments based on their values and mores. And I think that's uh, admirable. And I honestly don't know another way for it there. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, going back to what organizations can and should do, I think it is important to realize and to emphasize that organizations do have a duty to provide a safe workplace for their people. And, you know, I think what this practically means for most organizations right now as they're opening up, as they're feeling their way through um, this, uh, this pandemic, is Number one, abide by the recommendations from experts. You know, so uh, if it has to do with distancing, if it has to do with mask wearing, those types of items, follow those recommendations. Also, follow your local and state guidance. Um, you know, there are uh, those can differ certainly in terms of um, when when certain organizations can be open and so forth. But follow that guidance. It's also important to realize there's a human component here, and you've got to communicate with your employees and let them know that you care about them. And
1: uh, you know, that's that's a very important piece. <laughs> and and for God's sake, actually care about them. I mean, that's wait, a struggle I, for some of the people <laughs> out there, right? You, you mean I
0: can't just tell them that I care about them? <laughs> like we say all the time,
1: you can't fake this stuff. No. If you actually care about your employees, a lot of this is gonna happen very naturally for you.
0: That's true, that's true. And, you know, if you actually care about your employees, then you're probably going to communicate with them. You're probably going to uh, follow recommendations to keep them safe. And this is all important for flourishing in at the, work, in the workplace and beyond, um, because this is what, you know, helps an organization thrive. It's what helps an organization have the best people actually stick around and perform well.
1: Yeah. And leaders need to be ready to deal with the questions that are going to come up mm-hmm. from your workforce. Um, exploring alternate uh, work arrangements um some people might not be able to come back the child care stuff or or just not feeling safe this would be an opportunity to take you know what did we learn from the last three months about driving productivity managing people remotely and mm-hmm. and maybe flexing those new muscles and, and continuing some of that if you can sure I, there are a number of
0: organizations that have decided that hey we're gonna keep this uh, working from home thing going uh for large segments if not all of our workforce and that is a plausible path forward, depending on what uh, what your organization does. So you know, think back to the, you know March and all the things we've learned. Uh, I think most organizations have learned a lot. I think a lot of um, if you go back to functions like HR, I mean, those those folks have really gotten um, kind of been had a lot of greatness thrust upon them, so to speak, <laughs> in terms of trying to manage a lot of this. Uh, So it's important to learn from all that and become a better organization because of this.
1: Become more resilient. Right. And and there's a lot of social polarization around what's a pandemic that doesn't give a rip, right? Mm. And you need to be careful not to exacerbate that social polarization in the workplace. So the, the idea is to communicate well and then make a path forward for your company that aligns with your values and include everyone in the participation with us. You know, we're a company that believes, you know, let's say you're a food processor. We feed the nation and we are an essential service. We must stay open. We will mm-hmm. endeavor to uh, make this a safe workplace, but we need your help at home, you know, to make this a safe workplace as well. Um, that Those kinds of items and and make your communication about opening about this is how we view the situation. This is how we evaluate risk. This is, you know, why we find this acceptable to move forward rather than a, a in-group, out-group kind of social stance. Uh, I, this should not be about that kind of thing.
0: That's right. That's right. And, you know, the last thing that I think we want to address here is that, you know, the way that this topic of Dealing with the pandemic of what you know should have, would have, could have been done, uh, has been treated by the media in a fairly um polarized way, I'll say, right? Um, and you know, some of it is, is what you you called premeditated moralizing, you know, saying that if uh, you know, the, if you don't think this way, then you are a bad person and you are wrong. And I, I think
1: there's which just there's a, lots of Lots of times that that's true, <laughs> right? Exactly. You know? are right? like if you're still into the flat Earth thing, I I don't know what to say to you, buddy. You know, <laughs> but but this isn't one of those times, okay? No. So and we we see in any organization would struggle with responding to this kind of pandemic. Have there been flubs all over their place? Could it been better? Sure, but I specifically see this now. There's almost a soft um a soft consensus that because we're opening up we're absolute failures uh all over the place right yeah so that
0: brings us to this article that is in the atlantic and you know we read the atlantic and we like the atlantic uh some great stuff in there um but this this is an article that was posted a couple days ago it's called the virus will win Americans are pretending that the pandemic is over it certainly is not. And this kind of speaks to what we were talking about with this idea of there being a social end to the pandemic, and yet it is not medically over. And we agree with that, don't we?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been saying. That's what other people have been saying. But the problem here is that these guys are taking, and I see it more than just in that One Atlantic article. So, you know, author of that article, you've got some blame to share with some of your peers. <laughs> but, but you're taking a polemical approach that lacks focus on what is a morally defensible way forward. Mm-hmm. The assumption is opening up is morally indefensible. And that's just not true. You know, there's this kind of soft consensus around, namely, that we need to stay locked down or that we're giving up. This ignores what it's possible for humans to even do. You know, like mm-hmm. we, if we put somebody in social isolation, there's major psychological impacts and and there's ideas of freedom and legality, all things. So this becomes a complex conversation. And to s- sit on that kind of perspective is I I can't get behind that thinking at all.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there I thought the article was actually is one in the Atlantic. Again, we'll post a link to that in the show notes. But. Um, you know, there's some good points here about you know what has happened and how people are behaving and so forth. Uh, but the the troubling thing, and this we've seen this kind of in you know in, in other aspects of the media as well, is what I'll quote from here in the uh, the last part of the article, uh, where the author writes, uh, "Thanks to the efforts of millions of people, we were close to a great success story, but because of the failures of Trump and Shelvin, Of the CDC and the WHO, of public health experts and Fox Fox News hosts, we are instead likely to give up and tolerate that hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens will die needless deaths. Pandemics reveal the true state of a society. Ours has come up badly wanting. And I I feel like that kind of you know takes this the the argument away for it takes a lot of the steam out of the argument, really, because it's 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 suggesting that. You know, it's laying all this blame on these different entities when we don't actually know the counterfactual. We don't know actually what would have happened. And, you know, I I just don't think that that's a fair way to think about this whole issue.
1: Now, to be fair, in that article, he says, hey, listen, there's probably like 30 things that might get the blame here. Sure. And and we don't know which one. so, like, to be fair, he like lists out, you know, a bunch of possibilities. And some
0: of them are totally valid. I'll give him that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right. But it's this idea that now that we're moving forward, when we don't Mm -hmm. know if there's going to be a vaccine or we can't predict, you know, all of that kind of things that we're taking a eyes wide open risk management approach to doing that. And then, I mean, there's all these logistical things you'd have to say, like, how do you pay for us staying shut down and and all those kinds of things. And and I I think there's a lot of false uh, arguments that are out there. If you open up, it's because you hate people and want them to die. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, sub iteration on that. Right. Um, if you stay closed or if you shut down again, it's because you want to erase the wealth of everybody. You know, these that that does not capture the complexity. It resonates emotionally, but mm-hmm. it just I don't think it's a fair take on this. So it ma- makes for a good headline. Yeah. But we want to be clear that we believe in the institution of journalism. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, reporting and the news and
0: transparency, all of these are very important. They are critical to running a productive modern society. Uh, You know, and we're not talking here about the actual fake news that is out there. Um, and when we talk about actual fake news, you know the as you put it, this is a website that looks like it's from Ohio but is run out of St Petersburg russia right yeah this that's is... that's
1: definitely <laughs> fake they may even have the stats of your little league ball game or something, but it's actually not yeah, so that's that's a fake news site or or that kind of stuff but these journalists and journalism organizations, um, they face the same challenges that every organization deals with, namely change itself. And, and they meet this challenge with varying degrees of success, mm-hmm. like anybody would.
0: That's right. you know. And uh, I think another aspect of this that affects every organization and every person, um, including those in the media, uh, is the, this idea of bias, right? individual bias and bias maybe as an aspect of the organizational culture. this is a real thing and it exists. Um, now some organizations try to deal with this through for example, training, um, but the research is fairly you know mixed on whether or not training actually helps with bias. Uh, you know and that's why having dialogue, having um, you know uh, some for example, the peer review process in publishing research, these types of items can help. Uh, and these are all just attempts at having a better conversation about these tough issues, these complex issues. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do, even with this podcast.
1: Right. So if, if we've offended any journalists, um, reach out. We're happy to talk to you. Happy to let you um, talk about your side of it a little bit. Um, but we just want to say to orgs, as you're looking to open, take care of your employees. Um, mm-hmm. Stay true to your values. And don't get lost in some of the emotional sauce that's flying around about this right now.
0: That's right. That's right. So, you know, today we talked about um, this fall and, you know, maybe it'll be a COVID nightmare or maybe not. I, the, the, the jury is definitely out on that. We don't really know.
1: It's a continuing uh, nightmare in my view. Right. It's, it it's just it right doing now. what it's going to do.
0: Right. That, uh, that's right. That's right. And a lot of this is going to come down to individual decisions about risk. Um, we talked about how pandemics end, this idea of a medical versus a social end to pandemics. We talked about the psychology of exhaustion and self-control and how it really seems like we have depleted a lot of our self-regulation ability, or at least a lot of people have. And then we concluded with some of these ideas around the role of organizations and leaders as we move forward.